you can listen to The Front on your smart speaker every morning. To hear the latest episode, just say, play the news from The Australian. From The Australian, I'm Claire Harvey. We hope you're having a great holiday break, and today we're bringing you one of our favourite episodes from the year. This episode originally aired on May 19, shortly after the conclusion of The Australian's groundbreaking investigative podcast, Shadow of Doubt. The Front will be back with all new episodes on Monday, January 15. Just hit follow or subscribe to hear the latest every morning. The top-rating podcast in Australia for weeks now has been one we're making right here at The Australian. It's Shadow of Doubt, and it's reported and hosted by one of the country's most experienced investigative journalists, Richard Gilliatt. Richard exposed the cancer fraudster Bell Gibson, and he reported on the offending of formerly beloved kids entertainer Rolf Harris. And now he's examining a case that's seen two parents locked up for horrendous sexual offending. You are about to receive a phone call from the correctional facility. The conversation will be recorded and may be monitored. If you do not wish to receive this call, please hang up now. Shadow of Doubt is about a young woman, we're calling her Emily Johnson, whose allegations of grotesque torture saw her parents convicted and labelled Australia's most evil. The father was sentenced to Australia's longest ever sentence for child abuse, 48 years, and the mother is serving 16 years. Over 13 years, her parents abused her in the most awful... The worst of all crimes began here. Has been jailed for 48 years. From the age of five, the girl was raped and abused in indescribable ways. But here's the strange thing. Not one witness during that trial could remember seeing any evidence of the sadistic violence the couple's daughter described. She told no one during all the years she lived with her parents and she pursued a career in sports at the highest level. No doctor, no teacher, no trainer or physiotherapist reported any suspicion of the crime she describes. Her own friends and others close to the family testified that they remembered her as a vibrant, supremely fit and popular young woman. Today, many of those people remain bewildered by the case and cannot reconcile the family they knew with the depraved monsters who were described in court. I never seen anything out of the ordinary. Never, ever did I hesitate leaving my child with them, ever. The family itself, they were just loving and just a normal family, I would say. Very close and very loving. Although, like normal people, I, you know, I've been down to their property, no problems at all, like, you know, nice family. Yeah, very, very nice family. Richard's been a journalist for 45 years and this is the story that's left him the most baffled. He wrote a feature about it five years ago, but he kept returning to the case. He couldn't let it go. It, it is exhausting and it's been kind of an absurd amount of time and... I think my wife would have a view on how healthy it's been for me, 
But I have found this whole process to be incredibly rewarding as a journalist. I think this format is such a great format to explore stories in depth. You know, I've written a couple of books and I just felt like I was able to go deep into this story as if I was writing a book, but in a way that you can present it that's much more immediate. The mother in the case, whom we're calling Susan Johnson, is in a women's prison where she does a thousand push-ups a day and she resolutely insists they are both innocent. I've got no understanding how, in in a heartbeat, just in an instant, our lives changed overnight and... And I still, like I say, I wake up and I'm in a prison and I wake up every morning in this place thinking, how, how is this possible? Like, is this real? You know, I wake up and think it's just a nightmare and it's, it's not. It's a living nightmare. Her husband, Martin, is an intriguing figure. None of that happened. We never had any issues between us and most definitely none of that stuff ever happened. You know, the, the, the shed, the dragging through the house by the hair and stuff like that just never happened. He too says it's all been fabricated by the daughter and that their normal, loving family was blown apart when Emily began seeing a therapist who practices something called recovered memory therapy. Recovered memory is the idea that traumatic experiences, particularly in childhood, are buried deep in the subconscious and that to survive, victims bury their memories. It's sometimes associated with something called dissociative identity disorder, which was previously known as multiple personality disorder. Richards revealed in Shadow of Doubt that Emily's therapist believed her dissociation, when she would slip into another reality, was all about protecting her from these dreadful experiences she'd had as a child. But what Richards also discovered is a series of problems in the way Emily's evidence was presented to the jury in the Johnson's trial. The jury didn't know Emily was having these episodes of dissociation, and they didn't know these memories were only recovered when she was an adult. I guess I thought, because I'd covered other cases like this, which involve allegations of extraordinary sort of abuse which are linked to memories recovered in therapy. I guess I thought I had a pretty good handle on where the story would take me, but it just became clear that this story was far more complicated and the family dynamics were extremely complicated. In the 1990s, Richard did a lot of reporting about recovered memory cases that were later discredited. The memories didn't result in convictions and in many cases turned out to be untrue. And many of those cases were eerily similar to this one. They involved girls claiming they'd been abused as children in a ritualistic way by adults using torture implements. The idea of recovered memory went away after those failed cases of the 1990s and faded from popularity in mental health treatment. But now it's back in a big way. And in this case, we have a family who split right down the middle. Two sisters, Emily and Sarah, say their parents abused them. Another sister, Rebecca, and her brother, Daniel, say none of it happened at all. After the break, what the jury didn't get to hear in this confounding case and why Richard Gilliatt thinks justice has not been done. My name is Manny Karoudis and I'm a former New South Wales policeman turned investigative reporter with a passion for missing persons cases. I'm here to quickly tell you about our True Crime Australia podcast, The Missing, 
In this series, I look at old missing persons cases which have all gone cold in an attempt to try and uncover new information which could help see these missing people reunited with their loved ones or any form of clue that could bring these families closure. The Missing is available now wherever you get your podcasts and early and ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts. During his investigation, Richard found some disturbing new material about the father's past. As a young teacher many years earlier, Martin Johnson had been asked to leave schools for having inappropriate relationships with schoolgirls. As a sports coach, he'd given his daughters massages that crossed the boundaries of intimacy. And there was evidence of abuse and violence within the home, including against his wife, who still insists he's not guilty of the crimes he's been convicted of. I did adopt the position at the beginning that I don't know what happened in this family and I'm going to just see where it leads me. And I did say to the family, see, the family agreed to give me complete access to the whole court file. And I did say to them at the beginning, you you know, you have to understand I'm a journalist. I'm going to go where the evidence takes me. But at the same time, I recognised that over time, they came to see me as their advocate, you know, the, the person who was kind of championing their cause. And so that was a real dilemma because there were times in the research where I discovered things, particularly about the father, that caused me to doubt his veracity with me and to just really have a lot of questions about him and his past behaviour. Do you think he has understood why or has he accepted the fact that you have had to reveal those things, that you have an obligation to the audience and to journalism to reveal those quite unflattering things about him? He says he does, and I have been pretty upfront with him that I am going to reveal things about him that possibly don't cast him in a good light at all. And he says he accepts that. Of course, he he has his own version of those events which relate to his time as a teacher in the 1980s. And I have my own view of what I believe and don't believe about all that. Everyone who knows that I've been working with you wants to know, what does Richard think? So, what does Richard think? Well, (laughs) yeah, that's the $50 million question, isn't it? I did tell myself at the beginning that I will never know what went on in this family. No, No one will other than the people themselves, I don't think. And so, I don't claim to know what was going on. I don't claim that this father is a wholly innocent man and that it's unthinkable that he was sexually assaulting his daughters. And I I don't think everyone's given me the unvarnished truth from within the family. But I do think that this case raises some really fundamental issues about the way their daughter was treated in the mental health system, whether she got the sort of treatment she really needed in a terrible time in her life and also whether the police and the justice system served her parents, whether they received a fair trial. I certainly don't believe that they received a fair trial. There are many lawyers and there was a Supreme Court judge who presided over their appeal who essentially brought down a finding that it was a miscarriage of justice. And he was in the minority. So my bottom line is I do think this case needs to be re-looked at and as do a lot of people, lawyers and psychiatrists, who are familiar with it. 
in a way, the central character of the podcast is doubt, is the not knowing and, and following you as you try to grasp on to what is true. You said to me once that our legal system is built on doubt. In the past few years, we've seen a probably overdue acceptance that many people who make allegations about sexual crime are telling the truth and that they have not been believed in the past. How do you see that balance between the need for doubt and and the acknowledgement of doubt in our legal system with the idea that, unlike 50 years ago, we are open to the idea that sexual abuse happens? I think that's the sort of heart of this story, actually, is do we have that balance right at the moment? Because there's been a concerted move to shift the balance in the way these cases are conducted. And so rules have been brought in about the way that the alleged victim in a case gives evidence and how they're allowed to be questioned and what they're allowed to be questioned about and whether anyone's allowed to have access to their counselling records, for instance. And those things were all done with very good intentions and probably they have had really positive effects, I think. And I certainly don't dispute that someone who's been sexually assaulted and then has to talk about that in a courtroom and be cross-examined by it can really experience a trauma from that and find it very, very unpleasant. But one of the things about this case that I think shows is that those rules can go the other way. And in this case, a whole lot of evidence was never given to the jury because of some of those rules. And I think that contributed to the fact that there was a miscarriage of justice because I don't think the jury got anything like the complete picture of what had gone on in this case. And the fact that the jury was able to reach a verdict of convicting the father on every single count, resulting in him being given a jail sentence, which basically means he will never be released. I mean, he'll be 95 before he even reaches his uh, non-parole period. I just found that to be quite a disturbing barometer of where we're at in terms of the pendulum and the way it swung in recent years because the jury basically said, we have no doubts at all about any of this. And I think anyone listening carefully to this podcast would have to find that result, at the very least, surprising. Richard Gilliatt is an investigative reporter and the creator of our podcast, Shadow of Doubt. You can read all the nation's best news, sport, business and politics anytime at theaustralian.com.au. I'm Sarah Lamarquin, Editor-in-Chief of Stella and host of our podcast called Something to Talk About. Every weekend we publish a new episode where you'll hear compelling personalities, strong opinions and thought-provoking conversations. I wanted to be able to do it in my time when I was ready and speak my truth when I was ready. The topic of when do I become a mum, that is in my mind 24-7. Search for Something to Talk About wherever you listen to your podcasts.